Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to begin there shortly. We began teaching two weeks ago about this expression that the modernist uses called lived experience. We all have it, so guess what? It's pretty cheap. When everybody has it, there's nothing special about it. Now, we're special, and we don't want you to feel not special. But because we all have lived experience, nobody gets to exalt one more than the other. And you find the folks that often shout about their lived experience the most, they don't really care about anybody else. It's all about them, 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 which automatically, instantly negates the uniqueness of their lived experience. We also kind of acknowledge that this whole lived experience thing now, if we're not careful, though we all have a lived experience, we're being taught by modern philosophies how to parlay or use the lived experience to formulate what is now commonly called my truth. My truth is to say, well, you don't know what I've been through because I lived something you wouldn't understand. Therefore, I'm exempt from God's standard. In which case we say, repent, for your heart is not right with God. Amen. So we have to be careful about this lived experience heresy. Because like I said, if you've been alive and you still are, you have an experience. And you lived it. And therefore you have a perspective. And God doesn't care anything about your perspective if it violates his word. We all see things a little bit differently. We've all been brought up on different sides of the tracks, on different sides of the Atlantic or the Pacific. And so really what we have is not unique. So please stop believing the lie that what you have is unique because it is not unique. There are seven and a half billion people on this planet. You live better than 7.4 billion of them. So God doesn't feel sorry for you. I don't feel sorry for you. So quit complaining or exalting your lived experience, all right? That's the whole point of what we've been hitting on. Right now, it's being used by Marxists in our nation to further divide us. And there's a thing called intersectionality, which is a critical race theory tool. It was used originally for legal pursuits. And basically what it does is it tries to divide somebody into their most compartmentalized person. And what they're finding is that we're all unique. So in an attempt to divide us, they hit upon this profound, wow, revelation that we're all very individualistic because you're not just a woman, you're a white woman. You're a white woman with a master's degree who grew up in middle Tennessee, but had a, a master's degree from Rome. And then you did a tour with the Peace Corps in Africa. And that's so unique. We have found the intersectionalities of your uniqueness. And so when you want to talk about diversity, you'll find that the greatest diversity and the greatest minority is the individual. And you can waste a hundred grand getting a PhD in that nonsense and go where nowhere in life. And you got there your first semester of the master's degree class. All this is a big bundle of retardation. So be careful if God calls you to high education that you don't waste my money, getting stupid. Get a degree that advances civilization, like a science or a medicine or something that advances basic education. But theory, hogwash. All right. So we're talking about your lived experience. And we've looked at Peter. He had a lived experience and he could have exalted it uh, but it actually got him in trouble with God over and over again, if you remember that. Right? And then we looked at Moses, and he had a lived experience, but it actually hurt his ability to serve God. So what do you want to bet your lived experience is probably going to be a hindrance too? 
What we need to do in the theme of all that we're looking at, tonight we're going to look at the Apostle Paul and his lived experience and how it hindered him, the great Paul. What we need to understand is our lived experience does not need to be exalted if it violates the Word of God. Even those of us that were maybe raised in the church, I was raised Southern Baptist, got born again at seven, almost eight, was, was drugged to church my entire life. The only time I didn't go to church is when I was backslidden my freshman year in college. Even I have a lived experience that needs to be repented of in some areas. My parents did wonderful, and I'm thankful for it. They gave me a tremendous foundation and have been, always been there to help me. I, I have no complaints against my parents. But even still, with my own decisions, my own experiences, my own carnal whims, I have lived experience that hinders me. We all do. So the name of the game is change, and it's always going to be change. We don't exalt our lived experience as an excuse to stay the same. We ought to be very eager to change. In fact, the, the love of Christ and the commission of the Holy Ghost compels us to be different than even the best upbringing could ever afford us. And we need to be prepared to do that. Uh, let me do some reviewing. We saw that Peter was, uh, even though he was one of the first apostles chosen, he was anti-Gentile. He had a prejudice in him, as all Jews typically did in those days. And they are still a very nationalistic people. But if you travel the world, you'll find most homegrown citizens of their nation are nationalistic. They have a national pride. We're about to hit the Olympics. You're going to see it on display. Nobody shows up wearing USA to cheer for China. No, nobody shows up for Paraguay to pull for Uruguay. Can you even locate them on the map? Those are countries? Yes, they are. <laughs> the Jews are nationalistic. Today it's called Zionism. But they had been under oppression by first the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks, then the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, then the Romans, and they're kind of over it. And so uh, there's a prejudice there. And so Peter, he's kind of a backwater Israelite. He's not highfalutin. He's a fisherman. He's, he would be the equivalent of a hillbilly. Country folk. He probably had a stars and bars Jewish flag he pulled around on his donkey or his boat. It's probably very offensive to some people. Maybe that joke's offensive to you. I'm just making it up as I go here. Honestly, the Star of David is very offensive to people today. <laughs> I won't go into all that woke hypocrisy. But he was called to, the, to preach the gospel, and 10 years after Pentecost, he's still anti-Gentile. He still has a prejudice in his heart. So we saw how he had to have a vision to encourage him to go preach the gospel. And we saw that he was called not just to a Gentile, but to a Roman. And that's a big difference because Rome's the occupying force. And not just to a Roman, the Roman centurion. And, and not just the Roman centurion, the Roman centurion who lived in the capital city of the Roman province, Caesarea on the coast, not Caesarea Philippi, which is inland. So he gets to go to the heart of his enemy's camp to preach to people he does not like just for God to interrupt his prejudice sermon as we saw in Acts 10 because it's we Jews and you Gentiles and we Jews and us Israel and you and you hear the prejudice in the sermon and the Holy Ghost just falls and he really gets cut off and it's like the Lord said, all right, that's enough. You're going to ruin it. And he, the Lord just baptizes all those Gen, uh, Gentiles in the Holy Ghost right there and Peter says, wow, didn't see that coming. Huh. And you, if you follow, Peter goes on and quotes the story two more times and acts like, I don't believe it. I still don't believe it. And he keeps telling it. He tells it accurate, which is pretty amazing the other two times he talks about it. But he's having to convince all the other Jews because they're prejudiced, just like we are. And so he had to change. 
Then we saw Moses. Moses, last week we saw he spent a third of his life as an Egyptian. He was 40. And that wasn't going to work. He recognized a calling at the age of 40. Even we saw Josephus, the historian, records that the Egyptian soothsayers and magicians prophesied over him that this child will be the downfall of Egypt and the courage of the Hebrews kill him. We saw that despite his recognized calling and prophecies, that was not enough to fulfill the call of God on his life. He had a genuine calling, but he could not be Egyptian and fulfill it. So at the age of 40, God took him far away and retrained him, deconstructed him, took him away from his, quote, peeps, his people. Sometimes your people are the worst thing you could uh, identify with. So he spends the next 40 years in Midia, among the Midianites, becoming a different person altogether so that he can spend the last 40 years of his life being a Hebrew. Three compartments of life, three different classes or races or tribes of people, all to retrain Moses so he could be what he was called to be because the calling's not enough. And we charismatics, we nutsos, we need to recognize a calling does not fulfill itself. Amen. He had to be retrained. And I mentioned last week, uh, Pedro texted me. He said, you never told us why he, he had to have an, uh, why he told the Lord, I'm slow with the speech and a stammering tongue. Remember that? That was, he has five excuses. By the time he gets to the fifth one, God's so mad he's ready to kill him. And the last one was, I, I need, I need, I can't talk. I can't talk. I was taught as a Baptist, he had a speech impediment. I was like, really? This kid, this man who was trained up in all the knowledge and wisdom of the Assyrian Empire and the Egyptian Empire, the astrology, architecture, and the combat, you really are going to put the stuttering fool in charge of Egypt's army? You think that's really how it is? No. But see, the Hebrew says, I'm slow with the language. Well, what language? Egyptian. He hadn't been to Egypt in 40 years. When you don't use a language in 40 years, are you fluent in it? Can you go be an ambassador? Can you go speak political terms when you haven't spoken a language in 40 years? So the Lord says, fine, I will send you your brother, because they'll both speak Hebrew, and you will be to him a voice, and he will be to the people as God. And there's a problem, because now God has another middleman he doesn't want, but it was better than killing Moses. So quit making excuses. Remember the Lord said, the seeing eye, the hearing ear, I've made it, can I not make a speaking tongue? So he's trying to get out of it. Uh, 40 years prior, he was so eager to start the calling, he killed an Egyptian trying to jumpstart the calling. Now he's trying to get out of the calling. Hey, make up your mind, oh Moses. <laughs> yeah. One of the things we do see, uh, today we're going to talk about Paul, is that all three of these men had callings. They had a lived experience that would go on to hinder their calling. But they still fulfilled it because they had something charismatics lack, and that is drive, determination, and resilience. And I will say this, because uh, we still have folks who feel called, and we'll have another generation that feels called. You will never fulfill any calling of God without drive, determination, and resilience. Because if you have a calling, the devil's not going to let you have it for free. And our church made an idol out of talking about being called. And I, I've since learned through the wisdom of these uh, British Assemblies of God, if you want to see who's called, just watch what people do. 
and people that are serving God fervently can't get enough of them and chasing, chasing the next assignment, those folks may have a genuine calling. Those that just sit back, take their calling, polish it, look at it, look, I'm called, put it back on, they don't have a calling. They have a little idol. Because when you're genuinely called, it consumes you. Every, every day that goes further in ministry, I'm convinced more and more, when you have a genuine calling in Christ, you're either running towards it with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength because you're terrified of what would happen if you failed, or you're so terrified of it, you're running from God backsliding into the world. And every true man of God I've ever met, that was their testimony. They either ran from it, or they just drove into it as hard and fast as they could. There was no neutral, no patty cake, no Sunday cruise ship with the ministry calling. Paul's lived experience hindered him. But his was a different kind of hindrance. What all three of these men had, and maybe next week we'll talk about David. I've got to do some more studying on him and see how I need to uh, adjust some of what I've already taught on David to fit this pattern of sermon. All these men were, they were driven to serve God. They just didn't know how to quit. You've you got to have some kind of driving you to be 80 years old like Moses and start a ministry. Some of you won't have any energy left by the time you hit 65. We're, we're getting older. You got to have a faith like Caleb that just kept things moving for 40 years. It says, I'm 85 years old. I'm just as strong today as I was back then, both to go out for war and to come back in. So give me my mountain. Give me help if you want to, but if you don't, I don't care. Give me my mountain. But you can only talk for so long, and then your energy leaves you. And Jeremiah says, it's best to bear the burden in your youth. My, one of my pastor friends who's now retired, he said, boy, that pastor, that's a young man's job. He was in his 60s. <laughs> it takes a lot of work. You'll never know it until you get to this side of the pulpit. It takes a determination and a resilience. You have to be resilient to fulfill the call of God, even if it's fivefold ministry, missionary assignments, if it's marketplace ministry, start a business. It takes resilience to be a stay-at-home mom. It takes resilience not to uh, let this culture tell you you're worthless and wasted because you don't have a master's degree running a Fortune 500 CEO company. It takes resilience to reject that lie from the enemy, that feminist Instagram movement. But what a great calling. It takes resilience to be a stay-at-home mama and, and, and to hold your head up high and say, bless God, I'm raising up normal human beings. They can tell an Audi from an Innie, and they know who squats and who stands. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3. Let's begin to look. Actually, let me say this. I think I can say it now. I wanted to announce it during announcements. Uh, Miss Tracy... We all know and love Miss Tracy here. Um, tomorrow, she gets to go to court and have her record expunged. And we're very proud of that. A felony record. You'd never look at that pretty lady, as sweet and tender as she is, and realize she has a felony rap sheet. Did jail time. And uh, that's her lived experience. And what I'm, I just love to see the work of Christ. You know, she's a disciple of Teen Challenge, and she told me this morning there were some other things she should have been facing, some other charges, and uh, was able to avoid those and had a misdemeanor expunged as well. And uh, 
What I love about it is to see the work of Christ in her. She's not proud of the lived experience, though she's a product of her culture. You know, where, how she ended up in all that is a very stereotypical cultural phenomenon, especially in our region. But her lived experience, she's not proud of, and she knows it has to change to glorify Jesus Christ. We don't glory in lawlessness. We repent of it. And what's awesome is she can have every bit of it wiped away in the natural. I mean, Christ wipes it all away. If I didn't, if I didn't tell you she had a felony record, because you, your mind's like, well, okay, what, what was it for? Felony's serious stuff, so I wouldn't mess with her. Because <laughs> we don't know how crucified the old man is yet. <laughs> But I was thinking and taught in light of all this, and every culture has got to teach its people. We've got a lot of different cultures represented here. Every culture has to teach its people in Christ. We forget the things that are behind. We press on. We're not proud of that. We don't mind if it's part of our testimony, but we press on to the saving of our soul. So I really got to thinking about cultures because I'm a student of culture. And though I have been called a racist, I'm not a racist. I'm a culturalist. I hate certain cultures. And you should too. You should hate the culture of fornication. You should hate the culture of abortion. You should hate the culture of homosexuality. Don't hate the homosexuality. You should hate the culture of it because these are wicked cultures. And anything that creeps in to our churches or our families that are wicked, you're supposed to hate sin. So I was just thinking about Tracy, the work of Christ in her. I think if she was raised in a different culture, she would parlay her felony rap sheet into some street cred. And then with some street cred, that's when you take pride that you've been a convicted criminal. Then you'd cut a record. Frank knows where I'm going. And then you would teach the young generation how cool it is to have a criminal record. And how all them girls ain't but bees and hoes. And F the police. You know, because... Because, you know, you can't trust them. And then you teach a whole generation how it's cool to have street cred, and you'd make it desirable in that next generation. And they'd want to be like you because they got your record. And then they would follow in your footsteps. And then you could double down after you've cut a couple platinum albums and made yourself a millionaire and complain about policing. Does that offend you? Is that a racial observation or a cultural observation? Because she's from hillbilly country. Whites don't brag about that stuff. They do brag about adultery. You know, our toothless music. Lost my dog, lost my truck, lost my trailer. This here's the queen of my double wide trailer. We, we share denture cream and fix a dent and don't forget it and that's what white people brag about. Other cultures have their own damnable culture that curses their people. Why can't they just curse their lived experience and go on? Yeah, I just, the work of Christ in a person says, I can't wait to put the past behind me. And I know I'm forgiven in Christ, but it'll be so awesome when my felony doesn't come back up on my dock. Be so wonderful, I can vote again. I could get a firearm if I want to. You looking forward to that? Maybe. We got plenty in this church. We'll let you have one if it's legal. 
So let's go back to this lived experience and see how it hurts us if we're not careful. Because you can take pride in your lived experience, but it'll mock God and he'll resist you. We, we glory in nothing but the cross. So Philippians 3. Let's look at Paul's pedigree. Let's see something about his lived experience because this is going to be very critical to what we want to see tonight. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, I was circumcised the eighth day. That's pretty important. That means that from the very beginning, he kept the law. Like when your parents circumcise you the eighth day, they are sticklers for the law and it's going to work. You're going to be a Jew. He said, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. That doesn't mean much to us, but under the Old Testament, the Benjamites were the fiercest warriors. They were ambidextrous. You didn't, yeah, some of you know that. Saul, King Saul was a Benjamite. Jonathan was a Benjamite. They could sling rocks with the right hand and their left. They could throw spears with the right hand and their left. They, they were ambidextrous. Ehud, a Benjamite, he stabbed him with a left-handed dagger. There's a pedigree here. Paul's not... He's not ashamed to brag about it. He's like, yep, I'm of one of them. We're doubly dangerous. Not that he's a warrior, but there's a legacy to the Jew that we miss out on because we don't understand the Old Testament is thorough. So he's proud to say, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. <clears throat> I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That means when you think of a Hebrew, I'm the best. King of kings, Lord of lords. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Pharisee, excuse me, that's touching uh, the law. I'm a Pharisee. That was his training, his upbringing. He says, concerning zeal, <clears throat> I persecuted the church. That was the height of Judaism in the early years of Christianity. If you were really zealous for the law, you got after the, that sect that is called the way. We call it the early church. It's touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What that says is, I never broke a single 613 commandments. Not a one of them, which is doable, but not in your heart. Never fornicated, never murdered, never slandered. Those are doable but you can't keep them in your heart. But that's why he, he qualifies it. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. All right? Let's look at another portion of his pedigree. Go to Acts 22. This is important because Paul is uh, kind of building us a case that we're going to use to prosecute him with. <laughs> One of the wonderful testimonies of the Bible is it doesn't paint any of its heroes in a perfect light. None but Jesus Christ. Even your greatest heroes, the Bible spills the dirt on. David, dirt. Solomon, dirt. Abraham, dirt. Samson, dirt. Samuel, dirt. Peter, James, and John, dirt. The Bible tells us where they were wrong so that we can learn from their humanity. Acts 22, this is Paul on trial. He defends himself. He says, I am verily a man which am a Jew. Born in Tarsus. Actually, verse 2 says he begins speaking in Hebrew. This isn't to a trial. So they get real quiet when this guy speaks Hebrew. Whoa, 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 that's our tongue. That's how Hebrew he is. He says, I'm a Jew, but I was born in Tarsus. That's the capital of Cilicia. That's kind of around the coast from Antioch up there on the southwestern, southeastern coast of Turkey. He says, I'm from Tarsus. That's an international port city. That's a big Roman trading port. It's an international city. So he's different than Peter. Peter is a backwater Israelite. He's hodunk, fisherman, heart, center of Israel, Sea of Galilee. That's his town. His village is on the north side of Galilee. Peter is a hillbilly, if we can say it in our terms. It's country, but not Paul. Paul is cosmopolitan. Paul is from a port city. 
Paul saw the trading roads of the spice route coming from uh, the Gauls and from uh, all the way into Spain and Rome coming through and going. Everybody, he was multicultural. Born in Tarsus. He said, uh, yet brought up in this city, that's Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel. That's a tremendous scribe, excuse me, Pharisee and a doctor of the law. That would be like their Billy Graham. That would be like their C.S. Lewis, their greatest Jewish theologian. That was Paul's disciple. So this is his pedigree. Taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as you all are this day. He's acknowledging they're zealous for God. They're just a little misdirected. All right, are we seeing Paul's pedigree? I'm a Jew's Jew. I'm a Hebrew's Hebrew. I'm a Pharisee's Pharisee. My father in the faith was Gamaliel, and they all knew who that was. So that says he was taught by the best. He's international. He's cultured. He's not a backwater fisherman. He really has a bigger picture on what's going on in life. Go to Romans 9. We have a little bit more of his pedigree here. <clears throat> Actually, we see his heart. And then we're going to move forward with this. Paul said in Romans 9, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. That is, he says, I wish I could be cut off from eternity if it would save the Jews. This lets you know where his heart is. He really loves these guys. Whereas Peter had prejudice against Greeks, so there's a prejudice hindering him there, and Moses was too Egyptian, Paul's lived experience hindered him in this way. He didn't have anybody he disliked. He had somebody he liked too much. Paul favored the Jews too much, and that may be, get, be, may be our problem. It may be <clears throat> we're not prejudiced. It may be that we're not too this or too that. It may be we're too drawn one direction or the other, and we have to be careful. Because all Paul's saying is, I'm drawn to, quote, my people. Now, he's not prejudiced when he says that, and we're at putting words in his mouth. He's certainly international. But he still, his heart is really pulled towards them because that's all he knows. Zealous. His candle has burned for the God of Israel to the degree he killed Christians and felt good about it. He even said, my conscience bears witness. I've not done anything wrong. He was admitting, even when I killed Christians, I did it according to the law because I thought I was doing God a service. Jesus said the same thing. He told his disciples, there will come a day where they will kill you, and those that kill you will think they do God a service. That was Paul. So that's why he could say, I murdered Christians, and my conscience was clear. That's a zealous guy. That is a deep-blooded, cut-me-and-I-bleed-Judaism kind of Hebrew. That's his pedigree. And how many of you know, if you get too far in one ditch, that's what God strikes? So the key is, find a nice little wagon that straddles that steep crown called the Hickville of the Middle Tennessee, and just go down the middle. Because I have found when I get too much one way or the other, the Lord just starts touching me that and says, you can't have it anymore. You've demonstrated to me I can't trust you with it. So guess what? You don't get to have that till I tell you you can. I've lost a lot of stuff getting in a ditch. I don't want to do that. <laughs> they were who he identified with the most. Those were his people. So much he eagerly killed anyone he deemed a heretic after the ways of the Jews. But 
Paul had a life redirecting experience, even as Peter did in his vision. Remember, Peter's vision redirected him. Moses had a life redirecting experience twice when he killed the Egyptian and fled, and then when he saw the burning bush and had to return. Moses had to be redirected. Paul has a redirecting experience as well. Acts 9, let's go there real quick. And what we're going to do once we see this life redirection, we're going to see all the times Paul disobeyed it. And I want us to look to see where God is leaning against something in our life and we disobey it because it's too deep in our heart. And we're going to see some stuff. And well, let me get this part out, then I'll give you a disclaimer. Acts chapter 9, this is Paul's Damascus Road experience. He has letters in his hand from the high priest to go into Damascus and find any Christians in the way. And if he does, to take them, arrest them, imprison them, bring them back so they can be uh, executed in prison. And of course, we know Jesus Christ appears to him on the road and um, says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? At the same time, the Lord Jesus appears to Ananias, who's living in the town. And he says, I'm going to send somebody to you. I want you to go on the street named Gate. And I want you to, um, uh, or the house, the street called Straight, and look for one Saul of Tarsus. Jump down to verse 15. But the Lord said unto Ananias, Go your way, for he, that is Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the number one, who? So who's this first calling to? Number two, and the kings. That's his second calling. And then number three, the the Jews. That's his calling. That's the order. That's his calling. That's the order. He goes on, if you know the rest of your New Testament, and you should, he acknowledges he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He confesses that in Galatians 1, where it says, and when they assumed and could perceive that the same grace that had been given to Peter and John for the Jews, the same was given to me for the Gentiles. Everybody can see Paul's called to the Gentiles, but this is the early day of his calling, but we've already established he identifies with the Jews, and that's okay. You're just coming from them. And no matter where you are, you're coming with baggage and heart attachments, and the Lord knows it, but probably more than likely his calling upon your life is going to help cut a lot of those attachments and drop a lot of that baggage if you'll submit and it will hurt, and it will be humiliating at times, but it will glorify God and set you free from you. But very few Christians ever get a hold of it and do it. They have their excuse, these are my people. Well, I can just relate to them, but I know them so well. And God says, I don't care. You're a chosen vessel for me, so you do what I tell you to do. And honestly, Paul was fit to talk to anybody. If anybody could talk to the Jews, it was Paul. But God said, no, that's not who I want you to talk to. It's not your thing. But I'm, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I know the law. Gamaliel was my man. That would get open so many doors for me. And the Lord says, Gentiles, Gentiles, Gentiles. And we can see where this is already going to cause problems. But at the same time, let's evaluate ourselves. What do you still identify as? Sorry to borrow a transgender term. But it's just as stupid to think Christians are transgender in their heart. God's called you to this, but you identify with this. It's just as much a lie as the the transgender who thinks they're supposed to be a different sex. You're called to the Gentiles, 
but you identify with the Jews, it's just as confusing because it's not biblical truth. So let's stop before we advance here. Where might you be in your heart saying, but, but this, but this, but this, but this is what I always fancied. That's really what we get down to. What, what do you see yourself as? And does God agree? Well, I always fancied myself, you know, I was going to have this big geology firm and I was going to be doing mining exploration. I was going to be doing it in Sierra Leone and, and on the side I'd be preaching to the Freetownians there in the capital of Freetown, Sierra Leone. That's what I fancied myself. And the Lord said, well, you know what, you're never getting to Sierra Leone and you're never going to own a mining business and you're never going to go there. And yet we as Americans are taught to dream a dream. And then if you're in faith circles, then you're taught to command God to bless it. And God doesn't bless your dream because he didn't give it to you. And God doesn't care what you identify as, what you self-identify as, what you culturally identify as. All he cares about is his plan and his purpose. So we can see this is going to be spelled out so beautifully with Paul because nobody was ever more a person than Paul was a person with what he identified as. You know, even those of us in here that are American, we're not really full-blooded American anymore like once used to be full-blooded Americans. We're, we're so discombobulated, we're all over the map, and that's all right. My point is, nobody was ever as nationalistic and as sold out and stereotypical and cookie cutter a template of a person as Paul was. You steeped in everything that was Judaism. And yet the Lord says, and I'm not going to use you for that. So what is it you identify as and do you have permission from God? Because what you should identify as is, I'm a, I'm a sheep, I'm a child, but in this context, I'm a servant. I am whatever he wants me to be. And anything that hinders that service must burn on the altar. Anything, anything you're good at that, doesn't, that God doesn't want, just let it burn. Quit chasing it. That upsets Christians, especially Americans, because we've been taught that there's nothing more sacred than the personal dream. Think about that. We've been taught as a nation to make idols out of ambition and to tell God, this is what I want, and I believe I receive you blessed in Jesus' name. That's witchcraft. That's nothing but Balaam the soothsayer commanding a divine a divination upon something that isn't the will of Jehovah God. So what is it just you identify as? That's a self-examination question. Who do you identify your people as? What people irritate you? And I pray God send you to them. I thought in 1999 when I moved away from Cookville, I had been liberated never to return to this ho-dunk town again. I was like, well, I don't know what ever happened to that little town, but I'm free and God has great plans for me. Great world mission traveling plans. And, and then I was there in Gate A36 at the Detroit airport with Okinawa leaving without me. And the only thing I could think to do was move back to Cookville. And the Lord sends you to people you don't identify with to show you you're an idiot. <laughs> As are the people you identify with. Amen. So my, disqualify, or my, my uh, disclaimer here is this. What I'm about to teach you is a footnote in my Samson book. And I went 
two or three hours round and round with a good Bible teacher friend of mine about this footnote. We sat in his car in another city, and he debated why I shouldn't put it in the book. I told him why I should. He didn't like the doctrine. I said, well, you can't disprove it. He didn't like my perspective on it. I said, well, agree to disagree. I'm the one paying for the publication of it. It stays in my book because I'm still convinced of it, and I'm about to convince you of it too. That's how convinced of it is I am. So I'm going to give you a footnote, but it'll take another 45 minutes. So what we're going to see is Paul constantly disobey his calling because his lived experience is very magnetic. And it's hard to break away from what you assume and presumed and always just fancied yourself to be, to be what God's called you to be. I have told you I never thought I would be a pastor. And even when I agreed to take this church, I thought it would be an interim because Pastor Vaughn's widow was just emotional, tired, exhausted, and heartbroken, and she's just a little crazy. And we'll pull out of this, and then somebody dumber than me will come along, and he'll get the church. And this has been a 14-year interim position in a town I didn't like. Still have problems with from time to time. <laughs> Every once in a while, a guest will visit here and they'll come and they'll say, you're not from here, are you? And I'll say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> no, ma'am, I'm not. How could you tell? There's just something about you. It's hallelujah. <laughs> <clears throat> but honestly, I've lived here longer now than I have lived anywhere else. So I guess I'm claiming cookful just by default. All right, so he's got a calling, Gentiles first, then kings, then children of Israel. That's his calling. That's the order. Don't mess it up. But you know when he heard that, it didn't really register on him. And that's why we like to write things down and study them and pray them and walk them out. Paul hears his calling, but his heart doesn't hear it. Because all his heart is the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. Salvation's of the Jews, Jews, Jews. He knows he's called, but old allegiances die hard. So Acts 13, we're going to go through several chapters here very quickly. Stick with me. Acts 13 is his first missionary trip. This is really where he's launched out. Let's do a little bit of timeline study in our mind real quick, all right? Paul probably got saved in his mid-20s is what church history tells us. And he probably did not start his first full-time ministry for 14 to 15 years, which means Acts chapter 13, he's probably 40 years old when he launches out. He only ministered for about 25 years before Nero took his head off at the age of 65. He was, he was executed. He was martyred at the age of 65. So he only had 25 years of full-time ministry about 14 or 15 years in the Word, serving the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church, and the Antioch church and the Jerusalem church, all right? So we have to keep that in mind. And he probably didn't start writing his epistles till about the last 15 years of his life. So there's even a stage where he's a minister, but he's kind of a baby minister, and he's not really an apostolic letter writer yet. Doctrine comes later. And you can work all this out with timelines. Most of his epistles are written in the late 50s, and his last epistle is about 65, 68 A.D., 2 Timothy being one of his last ones, right before he is beheaded or he goes silent in his epistle letter writing. So he really only writes epistles for a few years. I know the old religious mindset is he gets born again on the road to Damascus, and as soon as he gets to Syria, he writes the Roman epistle. Because that's how we think. 
But that's not how it was. It's about 25 years before he wrote the Roman epistle. It's written about, six, I think that was about 61, 62 AD. I got notes in my Bible. Uh, 60 AD. So here's his first missionary journey. He gets sent out with Barnabas. They have John Mark. So Acts 13, verse 4. Who's he called to? The Gentiles. So if that's your calling, everywhere you go, who do you talk to? All right. Acts 13, verse 4. So then being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed into Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the? Of the? Old allegiances die hard. Old daydreams. Old fancies. The worst example I can think of, I preach it from time to time, it always makes Dr. Cephas laugh. I knew a girl in college. He's smiling and rolling his head back. She fancied herself, I guess, a Charlie's angel because she was actually foolish enough to share with me and I had to keep a straight face. I just want to, this is her, I just want a motorcycle. Okay, why? Because I want to pull up in all black leather, black helmet. And I just want to kind of cut that thing in a big donut and everybody step back and go, who is this guy on this motorcycle? And then I take my helmet off, she said, and my hair comes out. And I'm like, yeah, you watch too much Charlie's Angels. And they're like, this is a girl. Yeah. And she's crazy. So don't fall in love with her. Date her because that girl lives in her head. She fancied herself that. You don't go anywhere in life fancying yourself that. Now, that's an extreme case, but all of us fancy ourselves what? If it's not a servant of the Most High God, it's a mistake. Now, with that, you fancy yourself, I want to be the best wife ever, the best husband ever. I want to be the best business owner because that's part of stewardship. I want to be the best Bible student. I want to be the best prayer warrior. These are good things to desire and fancy. But Paul, he's, he's got a calling. Jesus Christ appeared. He gets healed of his blindness. He gets baptized in the Holy Ghost. And he hears the calling. Jews are last. Gentiles are first. And the first missionary trip, hey, let's go to the synagogue. It's just you automatically gravitate in that direction because it's what's in you because it's your lived experience. But we've been given a new life. So we just start over. You get somebody and say, teach me how to do it till it feels normal. Teach me how to think till it thinks normal. Teach me how to act till I act normal. Just teach me how to do this. Anytime you're culturally embedded in a place, at first their culture feels weird. And once you're there long enough, you just kind of get your heart in rhythm with the culture of it. Uh, in, in Asian countries, they'll bow. and Japanese specifically bow. I even to this day, when I talk to Asian people or talk in Japanese, which I haven't done in a while, I find myself bowing because it's just a natural thing. When we were in Iceland, they yes on the in-breath which is the weirdest thing ever. We thought they all had Tourette's or something or some kind of, because they died. Oh. And I, right, Gary? That's exactly how it sounds. Oh. And I thought, what is wrong with these people? They have asthma? And they're like, yeah, we're going to go up to the mountain. Like, oh. I wasn't going to ask, are we asthmatics or the COPD? I mean, what's, everybody was doing it. And I had to read a book by a guy named Haldor Laxness to understand yesing on the in-breath. I read that. And I was like, that's what they're doing. They're saying, yes. And it's a very Scandinavian thing. So I've been to Iceland now four times. And by the second or third trip, I was going, oh. and you're like, what? Because <laughs> it just becomes natural. You just, you relate. Now think about how resistant, how stubborn, how selfish you have to be 
to be in a culture and resist it. How stubborn, hard-hearted, arrogant, idolatrous you have to be in the kingdom and not take on the flavor. To be here and not change. To be in any church and not take on the kingdom's nature. Any church around the world preaching the gospel should be changing you. You should be taking on some kind of, some, some kind of flavor that you didn't have before. But now Paul's a baby minister. He's an expert ministry. He helps. Still the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's a baby Christian and God has mercy on him. So they go there and they preach in the synagogue of the Jews and they had John Mark to their minister. And, and when they had gone through the Isle of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew. How come? Why are you going to all the Jews? Certainly they were Greek sorcerers. Oh no, that one's a Jew. We know our people. Whose name was Bar-Jesus. Yeah, that's a Jewish name. Son of Yeshua which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man. Anyway, they cast the devil out of him. Uh, I just want to show you that verse 14. So they cast the devil out of him, and they jumped down to verse 14. And when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the? On the? Sounds very Jewish. Feels Jewish, doesn't it? Just Sabbath synagogue. It just feels all Jewish. What's his calling? Gentiles. But he's a baby minister, and God will wink at inversion for a season as you change your lived experience. There comes a time, though, when God will no longer wink at it and your life will be miserable. And you'll either submit and change or you'll fall back to where God was desperate to deliver you from. It's totally up to you. Walking with God takes faith and it never gets easier because it's always from glory to glory and it's from faith to faith it's from grace to grace, and it's always taking you from where you were and adding something better to it and stripping something away. No matter how perfect or no perfection, no matter how wonderful, how biblical our upbringing was, there's things that have to be left behind. Always, always, always. Peter, James, and John, the 12, they walked with Jesus for three and a half years. They were still being changed after Jesus Christ left. And you know, he put everything he could into those men in three and a half years. Look at um, verse 42. We're going to jump through a lot of stuff here. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, this is Paul preaching in um, the sermon when he had come to uh, another place there. I'm trying to find where it was at. Doesn't matter. He's in another synagogue. When the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So he goes back to a synagogue, preaches in another synagogue in another city. The Jews leave. They're not interested. The Gentiles are the ones who say, can we hear you next week? And you're seeing the calling on his life activate. The Gentiles are drawn to him, not the Jews. The Gentiles are drawn to him, not the Jews. The Gentiles, but what's his calling? The Gentiles. But his lived experience doesn't want to receive that just yet. All right, 44 through 46. The next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Here we begin to see the Jews make problems because Paul is running out of the grace of God for his calling. He's trying to do what he's not called to do. This is the first time in probably two years, a year to two of this missionary trip, and now the grace has run out, and the Jews aren't just tolerating with them. Now they're hostile. And this begins a pattern the rest of Acts. The Jews are always hostile. The Jews are always hostile. 
When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, spake against those things which Paul spoken by, uh, spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should have first uh, been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you, you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Hallelujah, he repents. Not at all. Not at all. No, no, no. That was just cheap talk because the next city, back to the synagogues. But wait, haven't we done the same thing? Try to break free from our lived experience. Try to break free from that thing we identify as. Try to break free from that thing we want to be that God says, I don't want you to be that. And this is it. I'm going to make a change. God's called me. And then what? Back to where we were. Verse 50, but the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecutions against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came into Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. We're seeing an increase. Now not just stirring people up, now casting them out of their city. If you'd have not gone to the synagogue and just hit the Gentiles where they're at, this might have ended better. But we're in a learning curve. Thank God for learning curves. But wait, there's more. Chapter 14, verse 1. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the? Of the? I thought he just said, we're going to the Gentiles. How powerful that lived experience. How powerful that upbringing. How powerful the influence of your peeps on your soul. We have to be delivered from our own people. In fact, the Lord told Paul, I will deliver you from the people I now send you to. You have to be delivered from your own people. In fact, it's even a little prejudice to call people your people because our people is the body of Christ, red and yellow, black and white. That is our people because I sure don't identify with Upper Cumberland people. That is not my people. Oh, no, 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 no. Please don't ever mistake that. That's why I work really hard to code switch and enunciate my words and remind the Upper Cumberland there are INGs on the end of actions. We go fishing and we go hunting and we go driving, not hunting, fishing, and driving. Now, these are not my people, but the body of Christ is. <laughs> Amen. But the unbelieving Jews, actually, and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also the Greeks, believed. So we have some Greek conversions. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against them. So the Jews are causing problems again. Look at verses 5 and 6. And when, they were assault, when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with the rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, uh, they were aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lieth about. They're not just slandered now. They're not just cast out. Now they're nearly killed. So we're seeing an escalation of disobeying your calling. We're seeing it's beginning to cost more and more by clinging to your lived experience and what you identify with. So here's what we're going to keep seeing. I'm going to drive this home hard. You have to drop what God says to drop. Stay with me because we could probably run through 20 more examples of this. But a lot of you are beginning to yawn on me. Oh, no, no. I mean, you're not because you're not ahead. No, no, no. I'm watching yawns. Come on, yo. I can't see if Ronaldo's yawning. He has a mask on. 
That's your ticket. Wear a mask next service. <laughs> Put on sunglasses so you can just sleep. I want you to see how many times Paul does this because it gives us hope. But we don't exploit it. You need to be who Jesus Christ has commanded you to be. And the hardest thing to do is going to be getting rid of your past and your comfort of your lived experience and the excuse of your lived experience and the my truth your lived experience gives you because God doesn't care about that. When he says Gentiles, you say Gentiles. If he says Jews, you say Jews. All right, verse chapter 14. Let's just jump some more to keep you awake. Um. Let's see what I want to give you here. Chapter, chapter 14, 8, Lystra, this is a Gentile service. There's a miracle, no problem. We know it. it's a Gentile service because they immediately want to worship them as Jupiter and Mars. Jews don't do that. Gentiles do that. But they have miracles, and nobody wants to kill them. They want to worship Paul and Barnabas. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not do that. Verse 19, though, and there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium. Now they have followed them to the next town. What if you'd have just left them alone, Paul? You're not called to minister to them. Who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, now they did kill him. Most theologians believe he was killed here. They stoned Paul. They drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. A lot of theologians believe this is where Paul was caught up into the third heavens. Supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he, arose, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. We're seeing an escalation of the disobedience. First they stir up folks, then they throw them out of the city, then they throw them out of their coasts, then they try to stone them, and then they do finally. And this is city after city after city. I think I would kind of go back to the prophecy that Ananias gave me when he healed my blindness and got me filled with the Holy Ghost, and I'd put it in proper order. I'm thinking we should stick with the Gentiles. They get healed easier. They don't try to kill us. That's a big one. They're not trying to kill us. We really like that in our meetings. But the crowds aren't as big. Maybe that's the deal. And the synagogue, I just, my, my car's on autopilot. My donkey's on autopilot. It just goes to the synagogue. <laughs> you have to be careful of the hurtful habits. Verse 27. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that had, uh, God had done with them. And now he had opened the door of faith unto thee. They don't brag about anything with the Jews. It's almost like Paul's beginning to get the picture. It's not working. I'm just not anointed to preach to them like I thought I would be. But is Paul smart? Not in this arena. Chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren, said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what happens here? This is the first uh, leadership conference, and they dispute whether the Gentiles should be circumcised. So Paul is very defensive of the Jews. He defends them. They have a big retreat. They come up with some rules. Peter, James, and John say, this is what you tell the Gentiles. We don't want to put any other burden over you except you don't eat meats offered unto idols or things strangled or fornication. Avoid that. We're good. That's like two chapters in the book of Acts, the first preacher's conference. And so Paul goes on to defend them, chapter 16, verses 13. And on the Sabbath day, it's almost like Paul's getting the picture. Now, Acts 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city by a riverside. What? What? You can't do that? You're a Jew. That was your lived experience. No, they do. They, it looks like they skip the synagogue and they go down to the river. 
where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and we spake unto the women which resorted there, and a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira. That's a long way. She's a long way from home, so she's not in her native town. This is in Philippi. This is in Macedonia. Thyatira is over in Turkey, Asia Minor, so you have a distance of the Aegean Sea there. So she's from Thyatira, but they're in Philippi. So it's a different, she's, she's out of state, so to speak. She worshiped God. She heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, her whole house gets saved. And all they did was go to the Gentiles. Now, what's interesting, note this, seller of purple. This means she's a very wealthy woman. That's a very, very, very expensive cloth. She's a fancy woman. She's down at the river. doesn't mean she's washing clothes down there. That's her business, though. She's a seller of purple. And uh, her whole household would have been a very large estate. So we're not talking about her or two kids and no dad. We're talking a household. But Paul goes to the Gentiles, an easy conversion, and nobody tries to kill him. Keep reading because there's more here. Verse 29, Paul gets arrested because uh, uh, they, over, they cast the devil out of a, a, a soothsaying woman. They get arrested, and um, the Lord it lets them escape, opens up the prison doors. And verse, I said, uh, what did I say? Verse 29, the jailer called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas because he said, don't hurt yourself. We're still here. Remember that? And they said, uh, he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They preach to a Gentile. They go to a Gentile prison and a Gentile prisoner, uh, prison keeper gets saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy, and your house. And they spake unto him all the words of the Lord and to all that were in his house. He took them home. So here we have another household get saved. And he took them the same hours of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straight away. I mean, you stick with the Gentiles and prison doors open, whole families get household the same night you're supposed to be in prison. You get free medical treatment. You don't need socialism. Preach the gospel. Somebody else will take care of you. You don't need me to pay for your Medicare. Get a job. Preach the gospel. Things are happening when you stick with your calling and you divorce your lived experience, the pride of your self-identity. I mean, really, that's a strong idol in our nation. I want to be an influencer. Hashtag follow me. No, hogwash. Hashtag follow Jesus. Why would I follow you? You're a mess. All right, chapter 17, verse 2. Almost getting to where I want to go to. I just want to show you Paul's successes and his struggles. Acts 17, 2, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three, days, three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. He's not learned his lesson. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude. He goes into the synagogues, but he's still having all the success with the Greeks. And of the chief women, not a few. I want you to see, when you stick with your calling, it'll, it'll work where it is. It's one of the reasons why I, I do my teaching. I'm not a singer. We bring in the singers. I don't lay hands as much as I use Mr. Marlon. That's his gifting. I'm not an evangelist. We use other people for that. You need to find out what your calling is and who your spiritual people is. Stay there. Quit, quit following this racial stupid, hit, stupid demon bait of our nation. It's just dumb. Your people is the body of Christ. Your people is the body. That church shouldn't, that church is too white. That church is too black. Now, nobody ever says that's too anointed. 
the stupidity of our culture says it's too white, it's too black, it's too Mexican. How about where God called you? You're still coughing up the stupidity your culture gave you. Just find the Holy Ghost. Yeah. Settle for that. Verse 5. But the Jews, which believed not, moved to envy. Verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent Paul away and Silas by night into Berea. Why? Because they had destroyed the house of Jason, upset at, G, uh, at Paul. Let's jump now to uh, chapter 18. Moving along. I've got to get to chapter 20, and then we'll start to bring this in for a landing. But I probably have 10 more minutes. Can you give me 10 more minutes without a yawn or a subtle over-the-shoulder climb target? Like I told you, if you're going to check the time, don't be a clock watcher like Dr. Barclay preaches again. At least just check your phone like you're following me on your app, because I know you're not, and check it there. Or we have these wonderful devices called watches, and you just roll them back like that. And you're like, yeah, it's good preaching. He'll be done I mean, 8, 10, 20, 30. Can't go too much longer. Yeah, for you, I need to. It's just for you. If you'd pay attention and stay awake, I could have been done 20 minutes ago. I got to give you more. You're like, you're like, this is overtime in soccer. When you have penalty time, then you have bonus play. This is bonus play. You took 20 minutes from me in your nap, so I'm giving it back to you now. <laughs> Acts 18, 5 and 6. And when Silas and Timotheus were coming to Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit. This is the first time he's been led of the Holy Ghost to witness to them. He was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews. Now that is part of his calling. It's just third on the list. This is the first time in the book of Acts we see him actually directed by the Holy Spirit to minister to his preferred people. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed him, see, it wasn't even a success. But they still had to hear. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed him, he shook his raiment and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth, I will go into the Gentiles. But we've heard that before, haven't we? <laughs> oh, man. And how many times have we said, Lord, I repent. I'll do better. And then we turn right back around and reverse our calling or short-circuit it. <laughs> Lord, help us like you helped Paul. 18.24. Watch this, though. Remember, Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee, Gamaliel's feet, circumcised, a Benjamite, Pharisee, tremendous man. Verse 24, 18.24. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria. So he's international like Paul is. Alexandria's Egypt, by the way. An eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. He came to Ephesus. This is like Paul's, like his mirror. This is like his, this is his doppelganger. But instead of from the north side of the Mediterranean, he's from the south side of the Mediterranean. Eloquent, mighty in the scriptures. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Paul wasn't ever able to be successful there. Whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him. That was a famous missionary husband and wife team, Aquila and Priscilla. They took, unto him, un, uh, took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them uh, much which had believed through the grace 
for he mightily convinced the Jews. Paul was never able to do that. He's a Jew, eloquent in the, in the scriptures, mighty, mighty in scriptures, eloquent in speech. He is Paul's doppelganger, but he has a different calling. He is able to mightily convince the Jews. They don't want to kill this guy. But he's preaching the same thing because Aquila and Priscilla are Paul's disciples. So you know they're getting Pauline doctrine. But that's what's the difference. His calling. Where he's supposed to be. He mightily convinced the Jews. And that publicly. Not even in private. He did it publicly. And there's no record of they've tried to kill him, stone him, run him out of town. No baskets needed to escape the city wall different calling. You've got to figure out where you're supposed to be and then shut up and be there and unlearn all your weirdness that God is trying to extract from you and me. All right. Now, chapter 19, this is where we really start to hit Paul's problem. And I'm on my last quarter page of notes. So you sleepers and clock watchers, you're welcome. Maybe this is your lived experience. We're trying to unwork. <laughs> Acts chapter 19. And after these things were ended, that's some time in Ephesus, Paul purposed in the spirit. Now, the Greek says that he determined in his heart or he resolved in his attitude. He is not being led by the Holy Spirit here. The word spirit is pneuma. We've learned for the last several weeks in our Sunday schools that pneuma can be mental disposition. It can be attitude. This is often taught that he's being led by the spirit, but it's Paul purposing. It isn't the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say, and he had a dream. It doesn't say in the spirit forbid or the spirit directed or an angel. No, no. Paul is doing the purposing. It's very clearly what it says. The word purpose means to resolve in attitude. One translation says he set his heart on going. That's a Phillips translation. He set his heart on going uh, to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So we have to ask ourselves, and we don't have time to look at it in the scriptures, why does he want to return? He wants to return because he hears Jerusalem has fallen back under the law, and they're circumcising again. The Jerusalem church has turned legalism. This corresponds with the time in church history, about 45 or 50 AD, where James is really messing things up, the, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, and it's very Judaic. Uh, uh, it's a Judaizer church again. He wants to go back and fix it. He went there once in Acts 13, uh, and he had the uh, 15 and had the elders council about getting out from underneath the law and circumcision, but he hears it's gotten bad again. So he wants to go back and fix it. That's why he's purposing in his heart to return to Jerusalem. All right. So now jump to chapter 20, verse six. And when, and we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them uh, to Troas in five days, which were uh, above uh, about seven days. Um, that's not the verse I was looking for. There's a verse in there that talks about how he's in haste to get to Jerusalem. Go to chapter 20, verse 21. So he makes it to Ephesus. He's coming back through. He's trying to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. Chapter 20, verse 21. So he's been several months traveling since he last said, I purposed in my heart to go to Jerusalem. Verse 21 He's preaching to the elders at Jerusalem, uh, uh, Ephesus. He says, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. Who does he put first? Who did Jesus put first? 
Paul's reversing it again in his own sermon. I testify both to the Jews and also to the Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit. The Greek word bound means prohibited. He's admitting, I got this burden, I'm tied up, I'm bound. He's admitting, I believe, this is my conjecture, he doesn't have permission to do this. If you're doing something and you know you're forbidden from doing it, but you're doing it anyway, don't you, don't you know you're forbidden from doing it? You don't have a good feeling about it, you feel icky, but you're going to do it anyway? It's because you have an allegiance to a people that the Lord may want to deliver you from. So let's see if the rest of this makes sense. And now, behold, I go prohibited in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions wait for me. That may be why you're prohibited from going. Now, wait, wait. Who's in Jerusalem? Jews. Who's he called to first? So why is he going back to the hub of Judaism? Remember Romans 9? I would die that they might be saved. Sorry, somebody already died that they might be saved. Not that Paul is misspeaking there in Romans 9, but that is the dichotomy of Scripture. It's God-breathed but man-written. So you see personalities in there. Verse 24, none of these things move me. He's overriding it because those are his people. He's overriding it because those are his people. Neither count I my, my life dear unto me so that I might finish my course with joy. But what's your course, Paul? It's not the Jews. It's the Gentiles. And the ministry which I've uh, received the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. All right. J jumping ahead, chapter 21. Now he's getting closer. He comes through uh, Phoenicia or Phoenix, which is Syrophoenicia, that's the, above the coast of Tyre and Zidon. Uh, now, verse 3, now when, he was now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unlaid her burden. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days. The disciples said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up. That's what he just said. Everywhere I go, every city, the disciples say, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. There's nothing but Jews there and trouble, and it's not your calling. Can you see, it's a problem like Peter. It's a problem like Moses. It's a lived experience hurting his calling. Whereas Peter struggled to go to the Gentiles, Paul struggles to stay away from the Jews. Both are sin when it's not your calling. I should say that may be an extreme word, error, but we're about to get into some sin because when the Lord says, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and you do it, what is that? It's sin with the best of intentions. Yeah, but it's going to hurt you. But well, we started off by looking at his pedigree. I am a Jew. I am a Pharisee. I was circumcised. This is my people. Yeah. They say don't go. Verse 11. Well, verse 9. They go down to Caesarea, so now they're coming further. So on the coast, you have Zidon, Tyre, Caesarea. Then you come down, you hit Joppa. You can come into Jerusalem. 
So they're down at uh, Caesarea now. There's Philip the evangelist. He had seven daughters. One of the seven, he had four virgin daughters that prophesied. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea. Coming down means an elevation change because Judea is to the south of Caesarea. So he's coming from a high place to the low place. And a certain prophet named Agabus, because here's the deal. Paul's getting closer and closer to the place he's not supposed to be. And the warnings are getting stronger and stronger because God's merciful. This is his last warning, though. And when Agabus was come in unto us, he took Paul's girdle, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of thee. Man, that sounds like Noah's well. Spitting you out where you were supposed to be all along. What are you, stupid? Yeah, go ahead, go down to Jerusalem, and the Jews are going to put you back where you're supposed to be. So just go there yourself. Save some time and some fare and some voyage. And yeah. But think about it. If baby Apostle Paul can be this dumb, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He went to heaven at least once or twice by then. I mean, you know, he's being used of God, seeing miracle signs and wonders, and is still capable of this level of insubordination with the best of intentions. That's how strong the heart is. And that's why we don't trust our lived experience because it's causing a mighty apostle to disobey God city after city. We're talking like a year of travel here. After city, after city. And when the prophecy's complete, he's going to hear his call that he reversed put back in proper order. So why is he going to Jerusalem? To fix the Christian's doctrine. So chapter 21, he meets with uh, James. They say, hey, we got some guys here. They're going to keep an oath. They're going to shave their heads. Hey, <laughs> verse 24, this is James, the pastor, telling Paul, take these guys with you, four men which have a vow, purify yourself with them and be at charges with them uh, that they may shave their heads and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing. What that means is we've heard you're getting Gentiles saved and you're telling them they don't have to circumcise or do these things. We know that can't possibly be true, right? So if they see you shave your head and go into the, uh, the temple ceremonially clean, that'll be testimony enough that your whole missionary experiences, they're not as bad as we heard they were. That is what he's walking into. This is James, the Lord's brother, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, telling Paul, Help me sell the fact that it's not as Gentile as we are hearing, right? You're asking Paul to undo his last five or six years of ministry work. They'll know that these things are nothing, but you yourself also walkest orderly and keep the law. This is why Paul has come back to fix this. But the Jews are not his priority. As touching the Gentiles, which believe we have written and concluded, they observe no such things, save only they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day purified himself. With them entered into the temple to signify the accomplishments of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews, which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, these are the same guys he kept stirring up their synagogues, I hope, hopefully you can see the big picture here. 
Everywhere Paul went for the last four or five years, he's going to the place God told him not to go to. He's stirring up a stink. Now it just so happens those guys he ran into in Lystra and Derby and Iconium and Macedonia and Philippi, they happen to be here this day. And they recognize him. I mean, you couldn't set this up except it's a testimony to don't be disobedient. It's going to come back to bite you. The Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, nobody else would have recognized him, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. The Jews, once again, this is a wonderfully dumb apostle. Who does he have problems with? The Gentiles never gave him issues like this. There's always a pagan or two. <laughs> Crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man! We've been hearing him and seeing him. We've tried to kill him so many times. He's here. What are the odds? Seriously, what are the odds? This is like 45, 50 AD. They're sailing by ships and riding on camels. <laughs> this is like we had church yesterday. We saw each other at the Waffle House tomorrow in Cookville. This is the ancient world. It's the Roman Empire days. What are the odds? This is him. That teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place and further brought Greeks into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. Oh man, don't you know it falls apart then. And everything he was dealing with in synagogues is now amplified a thousandfold because he's in Solomon's temple. That's Herod's temple now. And all the city was moved and the people ran together. And they took Paul and drew him out of the temple and forthwith they shut the doors. And as they went about to kill him, good night, man, learn your lessons. So the, the, the police have to come, in a sense. They have to rescue them. So they drag them, and they're going to put them on trial. Chapter 22, getting ready to close up here. But I have seven more verses, so just chill with me. Paul speaks, verse 1. Men and brethren, fathers, hear you my defense I now make unto you. And when they heard he spoke in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence. And he saith, I am born a man. Remember, we started with this verse. I am verily a man which was a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up at the city of the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as you are all this day. He begins to preach. He begins to share his testimony. The Damascus Road 7, 8, and 10 talk about Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? So then he talks about returning in verse 17. It came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem. Now he's testifying of his experiences with the risen Savior. Even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance and I saw him, Jesus, saying unto me, make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So he's admitting he had a vision where the Lord said, it's not going to work. Stick with the Gentiles. And I said, Lord, they know that I am prison and beat in every synagogue them that believed in thee. And when the blood of your martyr say, uh, Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto thee. And they gave him audience unto this word. Gentiles was the killer of the message. And then they lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. What a moron. But we have mercy because we've all been there. So he ends up in prison. 
The Lord Jesus has to appear to him in chapter 23 and says, be of good cheer, Paul. Now, the Lord only has to tell you that when you're depressed, not when you're zealous, not when you're full of fight, not when you're excited. The Lord Jesus Christ only walks into your prison cell and says, be of good cheer when all hope is lost in your heart. Now, here's my conjecture and my opinion. He realized, finally, I have messed up. And the Lord Jesus has to say, be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, not this time, though, because he hardly got it out, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. What follows becomes what is called as Paul's two years of silence because he's stuck in prison for two years. Look at chapter 26. Paul himself admits now later, having been in prison for a long time, two years at the, at the least, he's telling uh, O King Agrippa um, his testimony, talking about Jesus speaking to him. Verse 17 says, Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness. You see that Paul begins to recognize, I got it backwards the whole time. I got it backwards the whole time. I got it backwards the whole time. Now let me show you three, three verses real quick, and we'll wrap up here. Romans chapter 11. Paul spends two and a half years in prison. Romans ends, excuse me, the book of Acts ends with him in prison, but being able to have people come and go. He's released, and then he goes on to do other things, and he begins to write his epistles. He begins to write his epistles at the conclusion of Acts, probably another couple years. So Romans chapter 11, Romans is written in 60 AD, several years after his two years of silence. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. He finally got it. He finally got it. How long did it take? And how long have you got? Because it may not be 15 years. He finally got it. Look at Galatians 1. <laughs> Galatians chapter 1, written in 68 AD, says in verse 16, Jesus chose me to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. There's his calling. I realize I've been called to preach Jesus among the heathen. He never wrote a single epistle to the Jews. It's another argument why he didn't write Hebrews. He got his calling right, but it was given to him the day he got saved. How many things has the Lord given to us and we've yet to really wrap our brain around it and make the necessary adjustment? We just take off like a shot out of a gun, assuming we heard it. One more verse, chapter 2, 7, Galatians. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision, that is the Gentile, was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. You see, he's recognized by this time that he's writing epistles. He can look back and say, I was never really graced to go to those Jews. Though they are me, and I am them, and those are my people, it's not my gifting. Apollos, yes. Peter, yeah. Some of those other guys, yeah. No. He said he's going to send me far away from the motherland 
because that's where he's called me to be. And once he finally got a hold of it, he didn't have the problems anymore. Even when he was arrested by the Romans, they treated him so good. He was on house arrest. He wrote all of his letters from jail. He had people coming and going. He had apostles coming and going. He was discipling people. He was not hindered, and he certainly wasn't stoned. It was only the persecutions that arose that finally saw him beheaded, but he was ready to go. So think about this as we're done here. Think about how hard we might be making our life because we're refusing to get over our lived experience. Think about how hard we may unnecessarily be making our life because we refuse to change. And we just keep banging our head against the wall, just sure it's the will of God. And yet we'll even use the biblical explanation. Well, persecution, persecution comes. Yeah, but there's got to be success. Just because you're failing doesn't mean God has you in that. There ought to be some success. We, we need to evaluate. If it's not working, I should maybe change something. Get somebody to judge me. Get somebody to look in on me. Because I'm sure if Paul had reiterated his calling to maybe Peter or John, they'd have said, whoa, 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 what, what, what did the Lord say? He's going to call me to the Gentiles and to kings and the Jews. Where did you say you always stop off? The synagogues. And I always have the hardest time. Do you not hear yourself? No? Say it again. The Lord's called me to the Gentiles and the kings and the Jews and the synagogues. They're always such rough preaching. Dude, (laughs) the Gentiles, stay by the river where they wash their clothes and see what God does for you. That's how he ended up starting his churches. Hopefully you can see maybe by the Spirit of God where you're stuck in some lived experience. And even if it's a beautiful one, it may need to go away. It can be the most horrific hell on earth. And yet through something weird like Stockholm Syndrome, you're still attached to the trauma of your past. You don't want to be stuck there, but you don't know how to let it go. But you have to. You're hindering yourself. That's lived experience. That's why we reject it. We reject all the modern Marxist tools, critical race tools, all the modern woke tools. All of it exalts lawlessness and and blame shifting and responsibility. That's all heresy. As Christians, we take the blame. As Christians, we're responsible. As Christians, we forgive all. We love all. We're called to all unless the Lord separates things. Missionaries often end up in the wrong mission field. Pastors end up at the wrong church. Christians end up doing the wrong thing because they're convinced this is what I'm supposed to do. What better person has sinned to the Jews than Paul? But Paul was not called to the Jews. One last verse just comes to me. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians written 64 AD. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 6. Concerning zeal, this is Paul's pedigree. Remember, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, purebred of the tribe of Benjamin, ambidextrous, Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But those things which were gained to me, this is his divorce from his lived experience. Those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them but dung that I might win Christ. Those things we're clinging to 
Paul has a word for you. And that may be what God thinks of your lived experience and your personal prejudice and your personal favoritism. Could be just dung. Paul didn't say this in his early years. He said this near the end of his life. He could realize this hindered me the first half of my ministry. It's brought me more pain than I had to endure. Be a martyr if you want, but don't get beat up every step of the way. (laughs) What are you, a glutton? Amen. We learn anything?